This is the Disciple Makers Podcast by Discipleship.org. You're listening to Season 7, and every week this season will bring you content about making disciples. Discipleship.org brings together other like-minded organizations who are all focused on making disciples. Our goal is to help you become a Jesus-style disciple maker. Before we get into today's podcast, which is from the Like Jesus Initiative, how about that for a name? I want to make sure you check out Dan Spader's helpful and free ebook called Disciple Making Metrics. If you've wondered, how can we as a church tell if we're actually making a difference trying to make disciples? You could ask that of your church or your organization or your ministry. This ebook will help you sink your teeth into the facts by helping you assess and looking at your real-life disciple-making metrics. It's a guide to help you do that. Download this free resource at discipleship.org ebooks and click on the title Disciple-Making Metrics. Today's podcast content comes from the Like Jesus Initiatives track at the National Disciple-Making Forum. The episode is called Like Jesus in Methods, Seven Priorities Jesus Lived By from His Own Stated Teaching featuring Dan Spader. Take a listen. All right, so yesterday we wrestled with the mission of Jesus, and my daughter so well laid out the four chairs. And they're really four challenges. And and, uh, let me just tell you a little bit about this Like Jesus initiative. I handed out something. You can get a a box or a leader box if you want to wrestle with it some more. These three things are kind of what we've been working on. There's a four-chair discipling book, which my daughter taught about briefly, if you want to dig deeper. There's a Walk Like Jesus manual, which is what Glenn talked about yesterday, Holy Spirit Power. I'm going to do a quick overview of that. And then the third one was Live Like Jesus, what I want to do today, his metric, or the methods that Jesus used practically. Um, and then we're going to look also at metrics, and I'm going to show you the app and some of the details of that. But these three, I'm not a curriculum writer. Uh, In 25 years of leading sunlight, we never developed curriculum. We always taught the the life of Christ, the philosophy, the ministry, the big picture, and encourages denominations and youth pastors and pastors to go out and choose and pick good curriculum that fit that mission. And there's a lot of good curriculum out there. But when I was, uh, I spent the last seven years part-time working alongside of a mega church in Louisville, Kentucky. Matter of fact, some of my friends are here from there. Uh, Southeast, a church of 25, 30,000 people. Um, they brought me in and part-time, I, they have about 400 staff. I took all of their staff through what we call, we have nine days of training on the life of Christ where we open the harmony, we study Jesus' life, we dig into it, we look at the text we analyzed the, the, the geography, where he was at, what he was doing. We talked about the, how he built a movement of multiplying disciples, what he started with, what he do next. And so in the course of training that, we began to wrestle with, how do we get this out to 30,000 lay people? How do we put this in simple, transferable ways to, to help lay people, like Shadanki is saying, believe they can be church planners? Believe that they are disciple makers. Because the Great Commission is not really great. Have you ever noticed that? There's no great in the Great Commission. It's something we put on it. It's really an everyday commission for every believer, every moment of their everyday life. It's an everyday commission. And if I had time, I just could unpack that with you and show you that. But it's, it's for every believer to make disciples make disciples. And so these were three tools. And they're just tools. There's nothing magical about tools Tools only are something that will help you accomplish your passion. And hopefully you're getting a disciple-making passion here. And so we're going to kind of go over those. But, but what Christy talked about was that the four chairs, a metaphor. When I was training the elders at Southeast, they're really godly men, sharp men, very successful men. Um, I was teaching the life of Christ and I could tell they weren't getting it. You ever know when that's happening as a speaker, trainer? You could tell when people are getting it when they're not. Uh, they were asking questions, but they were not the right questions for overseers of a mega church. And I could tell they just weren't getting it. And I remember going in the back room and our guy, our continent leader from Latin America, just spent time with me. And he talked about how he was teaching the life of Christ using four chairs. And, and he shared that with me. And I thought, oh, that's nice. Good metaphor, different metaphor. 
And I went back in the room and I said, God, I need something better. They're not getting it. I remember coming out and I said, let's try something different. Let me show you how Jesus developed disciples. And let's just use four chairs. And these four chairs represent four challenges. And, and Christy taught this. The first challenge is come and see. He did early on in John 1.39. Very first thing, come and see. And two of the disciples. And it was a strategy everybody began to use because the Samaritan woman went to John 4. Come and see. I found the one. And so it was a come and see strategy. For seekers, just show up and ask questions. And the second challenge he gave was a Greek term, akalotheo, meant very different. Follow me. It means walk behind, walk in my step. It was a rabbi's term that he would often use to call disciples. And so Jesus goes to Philip, who goes against Nathaniel, follow me. And so it was a deeper commitment for new believers. And then the third challenge, done 18 months into Jesus' life, which most people miss. Christy brought that up the other day. But he goes to five. This becomes his ministry team. Five that he'd been watching for 18 months who are beginning to get his values. And he goes, follow me. I will teach you to reproduce. Matthew 4, 19, Mark 1, 16. And that was the challenge three. And, and what we call workers. The harvest is plentiful, but what? Workers are few. And so from that point on, you find Jesus 17 times with the masses, but 46 times with these few. He was going to teach them to reproduce. And then at the end of his ministry, he said, no, go, get out of here. It literally means go out and reproduce, bear fruit. Because fruit, biblically, is always a picture of reproduction. You understand that? Well, I could just unpack that one. Now, how many farmers do we have here? Yeah, see, just one or two. That's the problem with American church. <laughs> farmers totally get, when you talk fruit, it's always reproduction. And Jesus said, go and reproduce. That's what he was saying. So we talked about the four challenges. And the moment I used that four-chair metaphor, the elders of that church said, wow, we're a chair one and chair two church. They were an attractional model, pretty much. 3,000 baptisms every year. Really great at chair one and chair two. They began to say, how do we get more chair three people and chair four? What are the barriers between the chairs? Which is a great thing to study John 15 in a book. I read a whole chapter just on barriers between chairs. Why do people get stuck? Mark chapter 4, the four soils. Why do people get stuck in chair 2? Because of worries, wealth, and wants. Or why do they get stuck in chair 1? Because the birds of the air take the seed away. And we don't have a relationship. And so people get stuck. And how do you get people all the way here? Because in John 15, Jesus talked about no fruit, fruit, more fruit, and much fruit. Isn't this good? I mean, the Bible is just so filled with this. And, and Jesus, I love this, and this is powerful. John 15, 8. He said, by this is my Father glorified. By what? That you bear what? Much fruit. Catch that. He didn't say fruit or more fruit. He said much fruit. Why? Because I would suggest to you on the authority of God's word that God's agenda for every one of you in this room is to get to chair four. That's his agenda. Now, most people get stuck at chair two or three. Churches are filled with people at chair two. Or they move to chair three, and Christy talked about suffering, servanthood, and sacrifice. To be a worker, die to self. They work, they're in chair three for a while and say, oh, I'm going back to chair two. Just too hard. And they miss out on the greatest blessings of life of getting a chair four. Make sense? So we talked about the mission. And the mission is to make disciples make disciples. The end product of this is obviously reproduction. Reproduction. So we're going to look at that, especially in the next session. How do we measure that? So G- Christy talked about the mission. Then Glenn, what Doug talked about why Jesus is our model, and he dealt with the humanity. Now, how many of you were in here yesterday for the humanity of Christ? Some of you told me that really messed up your head. And that's cool. When I began to study Jesus' humanity, it messed up my head. Because I had this Superman picture of Jesus. He looked human, but we all know he would go into phone booths, suck on kryptonite, come out with a cape and do miracles. And fly through the air. And most commentaries I read said Jesus 
Oh yeah, when he when he when he was sleeping, that's his using his human card, but then when he calmed the storm, that's using his God card. And I began to really study Hebrews 2, which so clearly says if Jesus was not fully human, then he couldn't make atonement for our sins. And if you wrestle with this theologically, and again, I could love to go into this one. Doug did a great job with it yesterday. But Jesus is our model. Why? Because he was man as God intended man to be. That's why we call him the second Adam. Never less than God. He chose to live his life never more than man. Woo! That's good. That's Ryrie's quote. All of a sudden, I had a new picture of this Jesus. Never less than God. And he was fully God and fully man. He didn't give up his deity. He didn't give up parts of it. He just didn't use it. Because he had to be fully human to make atonement. So what happened? When he went through life, everything he did... And it was Doug talked about it, and then Glenn talked about it. He did it through Holy Spirit power. And that's remember where we talked about the model of Jesus, Holy Spirit dependent, perfect, Holy Spirit dependent. He began with everything that Jesus did, he did through the Holy Spirit. If you weren't here, I mean, he was conceived by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, anointed by the Spirit, did miracles by the Spirit, raised by the Spirit, even presented himself pure, Hebrews 9, 8 says, through the Holy Spirit. Isn't that good? So if Jesus needed the Holy Spirit. Uh Uh-oh. Now I'm getting personal. What does that say about you and me? You see, he was totally Holy Spirit dependent. Prayer. Now all of these, I I don't know if Doug Doug didn't say, I heard Doug do it this way. The the Holy Spirit probably is like, it's like the umbrella, you know, and the power is like the cane that holds the umbrella up. So everything about Jesus is done in the power of the Holy Spirit. But P stands for his prayer. 45 times Jesus slipped away to pray. Study it to see if it's not so. The busier Jesus became, the more he prayed. What did he do before he launched a movement of disciples? He spent 40 days what? Fasting and prayer. Not that we could learn anything from that. Last word on the cross was prayer. The busier he became, the more he prayed. Ooh. Can we learn anything from that? Can you feel busy? So, prayer. Obedience. Jesus, in his humanity, had to learn obedience. Hebrews 5, 7. If you're perfect, what does that mean? Oh, I, I, I start preaching all these. i got to get going. Word-centered. 84 times he quoted from the Old Testament scriptures. 72 different chapters. You can never convince me Jesus did not know the book, use the book, submit to the book so that it might be fulfilled, respect the book, totally believe the book, the book that he wrote. (laughs) That's a fun one I want to talk to him about. But he was submitted to the word. He He always exalted the Father. He said, I do nothing of my own. Nothing. Five times he said, I do nothing of my own initiative. I do nothing of my own accord. And he said in John 3, 21, when you walk by the truth, you too will come into light and realize that if anything good happens out of your life, it's God who does it through you. And that's why at the end of his life, John 17, 7, he said, now they, my disciples, know that everything I did, they did through me. Okay, I got to keep going. And the relationship with love and Christ. So that was the model. And then we put these together. I just showed you that. I want to deal the last one now. I can't believe I'm half done. And then we're going to deal with metrics. And I haven't even got to the content today. So if you've got a Bible, go to John chapter 17. Because I was over in Israel teaching the life of Christ. I stumbled into John 17. I always love John 17. Because John 17, 4, he said, I completed the work you've given me to do. And for years I thought the work was dying on the cross. And I realized when he prays this, he's not dead yet. And then who is he praying for in John 17? The last thing he did, his disciples. So what was the work? Making disciples. The will of the Father was to crush Jesus on the cross, make atonement for sin. But the work of the fa- Jesus was to make disciples who could make disciples. Do you agree with me on that? Yeah, it's very critical to see that. Now, not diminishing his death on the cross, because only he could do that. But his work was to make disciples make disciples. And then he, he goes on in John 17, the very last thing he does. Now, again, I love Israel. 
And uh, Warren Wiersbe calls John 17 the Holy of Holies of Scripture. John Knox, this was his favorite chapter in the whole Bible, John 17. He had it read the last 30 days before he went to be with the Father. Uh, you know, this is, a, this is, Kent Hughes calls this the, the most sanctified chapter of the whole Bible because you've got the Trinity talking to itself. Now, in this very last thing, and I know this is the last thing Jesus did because most people miss John 18, 1. says, after he prayed this, he crossed the brook of Kidron. If you've been over to Israel, he's down in the Kidron Valley. He crosses the brook of Kidron, goes into Gethsemane, make atonement for sins, where he has to do what Father wants him to do, die for us. But in this chapter, he's got his buddies around him. He's been walking with them for three or three and a half years. And he's got them around him. And he prays for them. He said, I could see him in the Kidron Valley. And, and we've shot some video down there. And I just can visualize Jesus with his 12 guys around him. Judas even there. And he lifts up his eyes. And he prays this beautiful prayer. Well, when I was studying this, it's such a profound prayer. I found Jesus made seven I statements. I'd never seen those before. And I'd like to call these the seven daily disciplines. Of a disciple maker. Because Jesus, in his own words, tells us how he made these guys. Woo! Now, if you like the Bible like I like the Bible, when you find that in one chapter, it's gold. And I missed it. So there's seven I statements. So I want to just unpack those for you as quick as I can. And again, oh, we could spend so much time in this. First I statement. He says, I revealed you to them. Now, just think about this. The first I statement. What does it mean Jesus revealed? Well, if you know John chapter 1, it says the flesh, Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. He pitched up a tent in our neighborhood. He walked with us. He talked with us. He lived with us. He added humanity to his deity. What does that mean? He, his presence. Jesus didn't just rent a blimp, floating around the world, say, I love you, I love you, I love you. He became flesh. And lived with us. Presence. How do you reveal? How did Jesus reveal the Father? Through his presence. Would you agree with me? He was, we, we just moved from the Midwest where we've lived all our life down to Phoenix. I used to fly into Phoenix to do training all the time. And I'd say, why would anybody in their right mind live in a desert? Now I'm there because I got eight grandkids near there. And, and the reason we moved was why? To be near our grandkids. They're our next generation disciples. And, and uh, presence is required. Now, we couldn't afford to live in California where they are, so we're as close as we could get without being a Californian. And no offense to you Californians, but, you know, we just So we try to get over there every month. Why? Presence. Disciple making is 90% relational. Would you agree? All the experts will tell you that. It's the best term for discipling I know is 1 Thessalonians 2.6. It's imparting your life. That's why discipling is so hard to learn. Because how do you impart your life? It's not a, a content. It's not a curriculum. It's not a program. It's saying, hey, Chris, let's spend some time together. Tell me about your world. Tell me about what's happening. Let's, let's hang out together. It's relational. And that's why what makes this, in one way, so fun, but so hard. So simple, but yet so profound. It's the imparting love. And Jesus became flesh. He said, I revealed you to them. Second thing I see in the text. Now, um, wait a minute. I need to go back because there's something I really missed here in Port. Twelve times in John 12, Jesus says, that you gave me, that you gave me, that you gave me. Twelve times. Two times that you gave me the words. Once he said, you gave me the authority. Once he said, you, twice he said, you gave me the name. But six times, he says, the disciples, you gave me. Woo! Think about it. These were not the sharpest tax in the box. Unschooled, uneducated. But what was different about Jesus' attitude toward them? They were his. And why? There were a lot of people that could have been his. 
thousands later on. But he went to these. Remember when he spent 40 days in the wilderness praying? You know what I think he prayed about? Father, who do, where do you want me to start? Who do you want me to invest in? Where do I even begin? He comes out of that 40 days, and these two guys come up, Andrew and John, and he says, uh, Master, where are you staying? Come, see. And he turns and smiles and says, Okay, Father, these are the first two. You sure you couldn't have done better? But that's all right. And, and so here's the question. Who has God given you? Don't miss that one. Who has God brought into your life who wants more? Could be children, grandchildren, neighbors, work associates. For whatever reason, they're saying they want more. Through their attitudes, their actions, through their questions. It's not a rhetorical question. Are you processing that? Because they're not my disciples. They're yours. God brought them into your life. And that's where we start. Who's got, that's why we're, our grandkids are our next generation. Because they're not your grandkids. They're ours. And so we have to reveal the Father to them. It's called presence. The ones you gave me, you gave me. Here's what I want you to turn to the person next to you and share the person that popped in your mind right away, that someone that God's given you. I'm just going to give you a minute to do that. I want you to put a name. Who's somebody God's given you? Okay? I'd encourage you to go back and take some time to say... These are the five, six, three, two, one person God's brought into my world. And make a list of them. Because then, once you identify who the ones God has given you, now the next six things we're going to talk about is going to tell you what you need to do with those. Okay? And I'm just giving you what Jesus did. So we're pretty safe ground here, right? Would you agree? It's not what Dan Spader's suggesting. Number two, you speak. You see this in verse 8. He says, I gave them the words. I love this. That you gave me. You've got to speak into their world. And maybe they're a non-Christian. Maybe it's a neighbor that doesn't know Jesus. Maybe it's a a new Christ follower. Maybe it's a more mature Christian. But somebody God, you've got to share what has God taught you. Now here's what's beautiful about this passage. When I studied it. The word here for I gave them the words you gave me is not the word logos for word. Logos is a normal word that's used. It means the written Bible. I am, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. It refers to Jesus as the living logos and the Bible as the written logos. But here he used a different word. I gave them the rima you gave me. Now, in some circles, rima can be controversial. To me, it's not. What is Rima? Rima, in my perspective, and I'm very conservative theologically, in my perspective, Rima is when God takes the, the Spirit of God, takes the written Word of God, and applies it to my life. That's Rima. So have you ever read the Bible? And I encourage you to do this. Read the Bible until God speaks to you. When you say, wow, I never saw that before. That's Rima. Now, don't just write it down. Jesus didn't just write it down. What did he do? He, I gave them the words you gave me. Whatever my father taught me, I taught you, Jesus said. Whatever I learned from my father. Jesus, in his humanity, learned as he went through life. And whatever the father gave him, he gave to his disciples. Isn't that good? So how do you disciple? You read the Bible every morning till God speaks to you, and then what do you do? You share it with your spouse. You share it with the mailman. You share it with anybody that'll listen that day. You share it with your kids, your grandkids. You send a couple texts. Let me show you something God showed me this morning. That's called Rima. What would happen in your church? 
If every Sunday when people came together, everybody shared the word God had given them that week, you'd never have time for the pastor to preach what he got. Because everybody's so busy out in the congregation speaking to one another psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I was practicing in this neighborhood where we're at. Got it. I've been, my wife knows I've been studying the book of Daniel. And, oh my goodness, I don't even want to get started on that. And um, I just saw something really cool I'd never seen before. And I love Daniel, namesake. And uh, so I told my wife, and I taught it in devotionals where I had a chance, but I was in the mailroom of the work community center where we live, and there's a guy trying to find out where his mailbox was and couldn't figure out which key would work. I could tell he's brand new. And so I said, can I help you? Are you new? He said, yeah, we just moved in. And so I said, oh, I understand that. We just moved a year ago, and here's how it works, and here's where it's at. If you get a key, and I can go through all this stuff. And I, and I just said, I'm going to just try it. I said, sir, I don't, I don't know if you're religious or not, but I'm a Christ follower, and I'm so excited about something God's just taught me. Can I share it with you just quickly? Take 30 seconds. Yeah, I guess. I mean, he was new. I mean, <laughs> and we had the greatest conversation. And, and that just sparked something. And he wasn't a Christ follower. He's been coming to Iron Sharpen, our ministry that we have for men. That's not, and, and, but I but just gave him the word the Father gave me. Do that with your grandkids. Do that with your kids. Do that with your spouse. Do that with the neighbor next door. Create this godly gossip about the gospel. In your, what would happen? That's what happened in the book of Acts, right? Within two and a half years, they filled Jerusalem. Not complicated. Can, can all of us do that? Is that pretty easy? Does that require any curriculum? Except the Bible. Does it require any special skill? Except courage. Make sense? Number three, I got to keep going. Pray. Jesus said twice, I prayed for them. I prayed for them. Now, in the study I done, I went back to his life of Christ and looked at the 45 times we find him praying. But I said, how did he pray for his disciples in phase one, or the first year? How did he pray for them in year two? How did he pray for them in year three? Because his prayers begin to really change. And the amount of time he prays really begins to go up. He spends nine hours in the northern part of Sea of Galilee in what I like to call the Aramos Cave, the Greek word for a lonely, solitary place. That If you've been to Israel, there's a little cave up there. It's a traditional site. Jesus would go away to a lonely place to pray. Nine hours one night. Praying, I believe, for his disciples. Because John the Baptist had just been beheaded. They just, you know, a lot of things were going on. They were exhausted. They're out in a boat, straining at the oars and frustrated with their teacher because he was up in the mountainside, probably sleeping, but he was really praying and watching them out there, straining at the oars. And he comes walking on the water. So he's praying for his disciples. Remember before Peter did, I said, Peter, I prayed for you. So he prayed for his disciples. Now we all know that's important. No. But here's my challenge to you. I used to always struggle in calling somebody my disciple. Because it sounds arrogant, doesn't it? Oh, this is my disciple. Here's my disciple. I was training over in China, or India, excuse me, with the campus crew staff, about 400 of them. The only way you could come to that conference is you had to have a fourth-generation disciple. They thought they'd have 100 show up. They had over 450 apply. They had a cap at 400. I trained for eight hours a day for seven days, and they wanted more. Just teaching Jesus. It was a profound. But you know what I remembered about that event more than anything? Every one of them that came to talk to me, they said, Dr. Spader, can I show you my disciples? They all had pictures of their disciples. That was the greatest joy to share their disciple. Now, I always struggle with saying, oh, he's my disciple, and he's... Even though we, I, you know, we got seven continent leaders, 137 countries with country leaders, you know, I've got disciples all over, and a lot of my don't even know because they're disciples, my disciples, and disciples, and they call me the great granddad. But I struggled even then, and then I was in the Philippines, and a guy did a devotion on John 13, and that passage, you know, where Jesus gets down and washes his disciples' feet, it starts off and says, Jesus loved his men. 
And the guy who's doing the devotional says, you know, for years I struggled with calling somebody my disciple. And same thing I say, because it sounds arrogant. And he said, then I realized, who are the men that I love? The people around me that I love, that I do anything for, wash their feet, serve them. If they have a need, go across the world to meet that need. Those are your disciples. You know, my dad, I went back to my room, and if I had time, I'd pull up on my computer. I just counted this morning 187 men, and I just started adding some women. I think my wife is okay with that. Women that lead our women's ministry in different parts of the world. These are my disciples. Because why do you need to be able to name them? Because if you can't name them, how do you pray for them? Would you agree? Jesus prayed by name. So you know when every morning when I get up, I'm an early riser, not because I'm a spiritual, I'm a farm boy. I'm just up at 4 every morning, okay? 3.30 this morning. It's just me. So I get up. What do I do? I got a ritual. Get a cup of coffee. Say, good morning, Lord. How are we doing in a relationship? And then I spend time in the Word, and God gives me a rima. And then I begin to pray, and I pray for my wife. And then I pray for my three daughters, and I pray for my two sons of love. And then I pray for my eight grandkids. And then I pull off that list, and I begin to pray around the world for my disciples. And I teach them to pray for their disciples. And our seven continent leaders, incredible, godly men, gone way beyond me in so many ways that are speaking back into my life over and over again. I pray for them. I claim them. I told them, you're mine. I'm claiming you. They say, fine, claim me. Who are your disciples? Southeast where I was doing training, just toward the end, I began to see the power of this. And we began to talk more and more. We used to go to the staff and say, who are you discipling? I want names. Matter of fact, the pastor did a whole series and I want names. Because why? How do you pray for them if you can't name them? we got to get over this, what I call surface arrogancy. Oh, I don't want to call them my disciples. Get over it. Jesus called his disciples and he prayed for them. Make sense? What would happen? Now, is this too hard to do? Pray? What would happen if you committed, picked three or four young men or young women and spent a year praying for them every week? If not every day. And then start meeting them them for a cup of coffee. No agenda, no curriculum. Except maybe the Bible and say, what's God doing in your world? Let's talk. That's discipling. That's what Jesus did. Protect them. See, once you have presence and you begin to pray, God gives you an unusual ability to discern potential fatal flaws in your life. Would you agree with me on that? We see this with our kids. We see this with our grandkids. Why? Because we're praying for them. And we know potential fatal flaws. They're not flaws. And if they move to a flaw, we're all over it. Because people don't care how much you know. They want to know how much you care. You've got to be willing to confront. My second son-in-law wanted to marry my oldest daughter came to ask for permission. I knew some areas of his life that weren't right, and I confronted him. He said, I'm not going to give my Stradivarius to a gorilla. You know, you've you got to deal with it. And he said, boy, you're so different my dad. Why? Because I cared enough to confront. You've got to deal with this before I give you permission. And he did. Why? Because that's discipling. And when you pray regularly for people, would you agree that God gives you a discerning edge into their life? Yes. You're not there to police them like Shadonki said. You're there to say, how can we get better at this? How can I help you? That's discipling. He said, I protected them. I could go through Jesus' life. Remember in the garden where Peter pulls the sword out and he has to heal the guy. Malchus is here. And, and he says, hey, I'm the one you want. Let these guys go. What's he doing? Protecting his disciples. Remember when he's up at Aramos Cave and sent him to the other side. Why? Because John the Baptist has just been killed. And he sends him to the other side because that's the safe side in his situation with Bethsaida. Why? Because they were next in the pecking order to be beheaded. He was protecting his disciples. Jesus, I protect 
By the way, by the way, I had discussion points in every one of these, <laughs> but I get on a roll, and uh, um, I probably should have you discuss some of this. Um, you want me to keep going? Yeah, it's just more, let's do head knowledge, and then we don't have to apply any of this stuff. But um, I, I hope, I, I want to motivate you to dig deeper in this and to teach this to your people. Uh, take a group, a small group, through this material. And why? Because when you teach it, you learn it. When, when you give it away, and you'll do it better than I can do it. Um, we have, by the way, all the stuff I'm kind of teaching you on video in the, in the Walk Like Jesus material. So there's a video of me condensing it, but then you can spend five days studying it in Jesus' life, and you'll learn stuff that I, I, I totally miss. That's the beauty about studying Jesus. He's a very deep well. I've been studying Jesus for 40 years, and every, I never tire of Jesus. I get tired of how-to seminars, but I never tire of Jesus because I learn more stuff. Would you agree? So I, I'm just going to kind of give you the high level. Then the fifth thing said, verse 18, he says, I sent them. I sent them. Now, don't underestimate this word. Do you know 50 times in the gospel of John alone, Jesus sent. Jesus said, I was sent from above. My father sent me. I was sent from him. Jesus saturated his whole mindset with sentness. Seven times, seven or six times in this chapter alone, John 17. Seven times in this chapter, he talks about being sent. And then he said, just as my father sent me, what? So I sent them. Now, I'm convinced Jesus had a very crystal clear strategy of building a movement. Uh, As I've studied Jesus' life, I find seven fishing trips he took his disciples on after he said, follow me, I'll teach you to fish. And he took about seven fishing trips. I don't have time. I could walk right through the Bible and show you those. But he also did six, what I call, missions trips. Or five, excuse me. Five missions trips. And what blew me away when I began to analyze chronologically the life of Christ, but every six months, he did a mission trip. First one, John 4, takes him through Samaria. About a two-week venture. No good Jew would go through Samaria. That's a mission trip. It messed up their world. Uh, Mark chapter 1, he took them on a tour throughout Galilee, preaching in all the synagogues, little churches, basically small groups, but he involved them. Every missions trip got harder and harder and harder, where the last one he sends them out two by two, and they come back full of joy, and Jesus is full of joy. He used mission trips. He sent them out intentionally to give them experiences. Kelly, back here. Uh, let Kelly, raise your hand. So Kelly's with our team for years was in Latvia. Uh, with our ministry, we have a, just an incredible disciple-making movement throughout Eastern Europe. 13 countries there, 14 countries now, want to be in 22 countries, 11 different languages. Kelly served for years as country leader in Latvia. He's now back in the U.S. helping churches connect with that ministry. If you haven't in your church developed a good partnering disciple-making organization where you could take some of your people on missions trips, not as the end all, but as a beginning to develop them, you can go over to all throughout Eastern Europe. They, do, they did, a, what, how many, 146 camps last year or something like that? 127. 127 camps. They have sports leagues. They have incredible, they have four different evangelistic highways they do. Your church can go over and partner with them, work alongside of their team, and when you lead the fruit remains because they're continuing to work with it. It's a win-win-win. You need to talk with Kelly and his wife, Donna. There are a lot of missions trips, but there's some a lot better than others. <laughs> and if you're committed to making disciples and make disciples, it's great to partnering with a ministry that has that same value because it's a win-win-win scenario. So you ought to talk with Kelly if, if you have any interest in that. Uh, uh, so, but he sent them. Jesus is very intentional on in that. Uh, he sank, sanctified. He said, I sanctified myself. Why? What does the text say in, in verse 19, John 17? I sanctified myself. Why? Audience response question? 
that they too might be sanctified. Don't miss that. Think about this. What does sanctify mean? It means to be set apart. Jesus said, I set myself apart. I chose not to sin. I chose to live pure. I chose to be holy. Why? So that my disciples would be holy. You know why this is important? Because the Genesis 1. In Genesis 2. Remember when God said he made the animals? And then he said, multiply after what? Your own kind. I've never seen a cow give birth to a chicken. God could have done it that way. You know, multiply after a different kind. And it's a guessing game what comes out. He didn't. Children reproduce. Children, you know, adults reproduce humans. People reproduce people. Cows reproduce cows. You reproduce who you are. Don't miss that. You want your disciples to be holy. You want your disciples to be obedient. You want your disciples to be authentic. You want your disciples to walk with Jesus. What's the obvious answer? You've got to do it. You reproduce what you are. We doing okay? I'm, I'm kind of being confronted this morning, aren't I? I'm kind of, I don't see a lot of smiles in this room. Uh, but, but are you with me on it? These are Jesus' own words. That's what I love about this. That's why I get so pumped up. Now, by the way, I, I'm not going to show you this, but this is our Live 26 material. I'll just kind of, you always hate to see yourself on video. But in the Like Jesus app, which is if you haven't downloaded, I'd encourage you to download that. It's a free Like Jesus app. You'll get samples of this. There were all three of the books. Right now, I'm like if you want to lead a small group. Um, in the days of Jesus, there it's the cheapest way to do it. You don't have to buy the stuff. John 18, one so here's, I'm just, I, I hate to see myself in video. So, um, I get out of that real fast. But they're shot in Israel, okay? Um, and and I, I do a five to seven minute teaching on these as you study the material, okay, on the life of Christ. And on that app, if you download it, it's free to download it. You'll get samples of two or three free videos. If you want to subscribe to it, there's a subscription cost. And any money we make on this goes to Global Youth Initiative around the world. And we put a third of a million dollars into developing this. And I'll talk more about the metrics later on. But that app is free. And what, what I'm saying, you get all three of these books plus a leader's manual on there digitally for one month for subscription cost. So if you're a small group leader, you subscribe, you can take up to 20 people through a small group for $12 a month, do it for three months, all of your small group, you invite them in, they get this stuff all free. It doesn't get any cheaper than that. You know, it's not real smart business-wise, but it's a cheap way to multiply this. And so, and then if someone want to buy the books, they can buy it if they'd rather have a hard copy, but, but that's what the app is, download it, you can see the stuff right there. And then lastly, number seven. And this one, I, Lord knows I can go a long time on this. I just about didn't finish that study because I couldn't figure this one out. Jesus says, I gave them the glory you gave me. And I know there's lots of books on the glory of God. And I've read most of those. But it wasn't practical. It didn't, I just didn't feel it was right. But Jesus says, I gave them the glory that you gave me. What does that mean? Then, got your Bible. Go to Acts chapter 8. I was reading Acts chapter 8. Blew me away. I'm going to have to do this faster than I've ever done it. I'm going to do it. Acts, or no, excuse me, Psalm 8. Psalm 8. Psalms. That's Old Testament. Yes. Okay, here it is. Where am I? I'm, I'm so excited I can't even hardly turn to it. All right, Psalm 8. I knew this verse, Psalm 8, and this verse is going to begin... At verses 3 and 4. I knew this passage really well because it's in Hebrews chapter 2, which is about the humanity of Jesus, which I've really studied a lot. Okay? Because I've been teaching for years on the importance of his humanity. But when I saw it in chapter 8, I was blown away because I just got a new Bible. And my old Bible, which I no longer use, messed me up because of a bad translation. I had a new Bible and I saw something I'd never seen before says, verse 4, what is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. 
you made him a little lower than, what does your Bible say? What? God. That's good. I, that, that, mine says, this one says heavenly being. But you know what the word there is? It's the word Elohim. Elohim. 2,600 times translated God. My old Bible says you made him a little bit better than the angels. A little lower than angels. And I just totally messed me up because that's what Hebrews 2 said. But I began to study that. I realized we were made a little lower than Elohim. Now that is what we were created as. But since then, Genesis 3 had happened. And what happened? We fell. And then you go to Hebrews 2. It says, what is man you mind for him? Son of man that you care for him. You made him. And then it adds into this passage. For a little while. Lower than angelos or angels. It describes our fallen state. Because when man sinned, even though we were created a little lower in Elohim, we sunk to lower than angels. Why? I'm convinced this is why Satan chose to sin. Satan looked at that and said, I don't like to have to serve man. Because he's been made a little bit lower than God. And so I'm going to deceive man, make him my slave. And Adam and Eve chose that. And so that Satan gets to have servants. And we're slave of sin until, and it says Jesus, Hebrews 2, came for a little, even lower than angels. Why? To lift us back up to a rightful position. Now, why? Here's, and this is where you got to read Daniel and you got to read Revelation. Why did he want to elevate it back to a rightful position? Because when he's coming back, he's coming back. I'm coming back and my reward is with me. And what's the reward? I believe it is Revelation 5.10, Acts 2. We're going to rule and reign with Christ. Woo! We're going to restore Acts 3.12, this earth to its former glory. When we go out and fix something, it's going to be fixed. Won't break again. Won't that be fun? We get to work alongside of Paul and Stephen and, and, and Noah and Moses and all the saints of old and Ruth and Naomi and oh my goodness. And we're going to tell stories. And we're going to find out as we're working, restoring the earth to former glory. We're going to tell stories and we're going to find out something we gave financially is why they're in heaven. And something we prayed for is why they're in heaven. And we're going to spend at least a thousand years, then go in eternity. I don't know what that's going to uh, Now, I'm a, you just understood some of my eschatology. I believe in a literal thousand year rule reign of Christ. And if you don't believe that, that's okay. Just get over it. Okay. But I do. I believe in a literal rule reign of Christ in this earth. And we're going to fix this world. And, and I'm convinced that could be in my lifetime yet. It doesn't get any better than this. Jesus said in Luke 22, 28, I confer upon you the kingdoms my father conferred upon me. I, I wish we would have talked in this conference about Daniel 2. Because in Daniel 2 it says, I saw someone like a son of man come and was given authority. Who's the son of man? Number one term of Jesus in the New Testament used 84 times. He said, I'm a son of man. The son of man. It was a commoner term. So he took that term. And Someone like a son of man came in all authority and dominion and people and nation and kingdoms. That's a coronation of King Jesus. And what does Jesus do right in that passage? He takes that authority and power and dominion king and he gives it to his saints. What he said in Luke twenty-two thirty: 30, I confer upon you the kingdoms my father has given to me. It doesn't get any better than that. That's our future. That's our glory. I can taste it. It's so real. Does it make sense to you? Jesus, I gave them the glory. He's given us the kingdoms to rule and reign. Woo! That should get your adrenaline going. Would you not agree? When you begin to think about that, meditate on that, that is the good news of the coming kingdom. Now, I found some people have a hard time remembering seven things. And that's me. So I tend to always simplify. And so what I've been doing the last couple of years is taking these seven statements out of I, John 7 that I've studied quite deeply and I really believe and feel. This is how you make disciples. It's this simple. It's not hard. Just do what Jesus did. And I've lumped that into three things. Pray, care, and share. 
You pray, so you got to name them. You care by being pure. By presence. By protection. And then you share. Share what God's teaching you. Share the ministry God's given you. And share the glory. The future hope. It's as simple as pray, care, share. Isn't it good? It's right in the text. So don't walk out of here and say, I don't know what to do. You know what to do, don't you? Just do what Jesus did. And just start here. It's not hard. You don't need curriculum. You don't need content. Oh, by the way, you should go buy my curriculum. But you don't need anything else. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding you. You don't need content. You just need God's spirit in you. It's this simple. I love that passage. So I need to live in Jesus. but walk as Jesus walked. And uh, that's an essence of thought. Okay. I got a minute? Questions? <laughs> I'm sorry. You just listened to a preaching. What? You want to go back? I'm sorry. Yeah. It helps me remember these seven. Because I've always... You, researchers say... You can only remember three to four, and I'm dumber than most, so three is my better target. But this is a way to lump those seven under those three. Any questions or comments? Or Yeah, you will hit robots. You will hit satanic opposition. The, the more your movement grows, the more you will feel that oppression. But having said that, greater is he that's in you than he's in the world. We don't bow before Satan. He'll try to stop us and he'll do it for seasons. But you just got to endure it and you got to press through it. I don't know of any simplistic way. I think you have to wrestle with all the emotionally that's going on in your life. You need to get people around you. Bobby felt some of that coming up this conference. He sent a quick email out and a lot of us went to fasting and praying for Bobby. He was hit, getting hit by some hard things in his own life and his health and and that happens in a movement. I've written a paper, if you go to Global Youth Initiative, GYI.cc, called uh, the uh, Sacrifices of Leading a Movement. When you, your movement starts growing, and I'm going to talk about that next metric, you will face more, more opposition. But greater that he's in you than he's in the world. We don't cower to that, but we realize it's a reality. And that's why you've got to stand in the Lord. You've got to know your identity those five booklets my, wife, my daughter my wife, my daughter wrote how to walk, talk, feed yourself, your identity, and live a cleansed life for baby Christians on sunlife.com. Those are really good. And this is where you need, like Neil Anderson, the identity in Christ when you come up against that opposition. Jesus didn't try to take on Satan. He just quoted the word of God and stood on that. Great question. All right, we're done. Thanks. That wraps it up for today's episode. Download Like Jesus Initiative founder Dan Spader's free ebook, Disciple Making Metrics, when you go to discipleship.org slash ebooks. Thanks for listening, and make sure to rate and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts, and let us know what you think of our content.